Welcome to the podcast, Accounting in Business, where I talk with business professionals about how they use accounting in their job. Today, I'm talking with Terry Jackson, a software investment banker at JP Morgan. At the time of this interview, he had the same position at Bank of America Merrill Lynch. He did graduate in accounting, but works in the investment banking space. Terry shares some great advice on accounting and being successful in business. Let's go to the interview. Terry Jackson, thank you for meeting with us today. Um, where did you attend college and what was your major? Yeah, so that's a great question. So first off, my name is Terry Jackson. Um, I went to BYU and Provo. And when I got to BYU and Provo, I had these dreams of doing something in software. Um, you know, I had a family friend who had started a company. And so I actually majored in computer science. At least that's what I thought I was going to do. And I took a computer science class and it was not very interesting to me. Um, I mean, I did okay. I did well, but, um, I just kind of thought that it wasn't a good fit because I wanted to find something I had an interest and a passion in. And I knew that the Marriott school, uh, the business school down at Provo was really good. So I decided to start taking classes in Provo. Um, at, at, in the Marriott school. And one of those first classes was accounting 200, which is the first accounting class. And um, I took that class and the guy actually was this guy, Norm Nemro, who, you know, if you have relatives who've taken accounting classes, I think he still has like recorded videos he teaches, but um, he actually was in my ward when I was growing up in Southern California before he kind of you know, ended up being very successful in real estate and then retiring to become an accounting professor. And um, so I knew him. And so I really enjoyed the class. It made a lot of sense to me. And so that got me really interested in accounting. And ultimately, I decided to major in accounting. Um, and I got my bachelor's in accounting at BYU. Um, and then I also did the, they have a master's program there where you can get um, a degree, um, a master's degree and a bachelor's degree. And um, I wasn't married, so I decided to stick around for another year and, uh, you know, um, studied accounting and focused on tax. And that was my major. And then later on, I went back to graduate school and um, got an MBA in finance. Great. And Terry's, bit, Terry's being humble here. He's super smart. <laughs> went to Wharton for his MBA, which is a great program. And what were your thoughts there about going to Wharton? Were you, what were you trying to transition to? Yeah. So that's a great question. So, um, uh, let me, let me also just give you a little bit of time before I went to Wharton. So out of BYU, I moved to the San Jose, California area. And, um, I actually, um, did an internship, um, that your professor, professor Walsh did. Um, and it was in like venture capital and, 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 uh, things like that, where they were doing tax returns for venture capital firms. And so originally I was thinking to myself, like I was going to do tax because I wanted to be a tax lawyer. Um, and, um, I did, I got my CPA license. I worked at PwC, uh, worked in that venture capital group, worked with some big software and technology companies doing different tax things. Um, and, you know, I really enjoyed the work, but it just wasn't as interesting to me as like doing something in finance. I thought like when I studied accounting, it all made sense and I'm grateful for that, but I wanted to leverage my accounting knowledge to make business decisions. And so um, an opportunity came up to work 
at another company where I would do kind of like be like a consultant to doing valuation work. And so I, um, so like when eBay acquired this company called Skype, which now Microsoft owns, um, and it's now called probably something a little bit different within Skype, within Microsoft, but everybody knows Skype, right? Um, we, we uh, as consultants, help them value the intangible assets uh, for accounting purposes. And so having an accounting knowledge really helped me to do that job, but it was really just straight corporate finance valuation type stuff. And um, that was a great job, but I knew that like if I really wanted to you know, build my network and strengthen my knowledge in finance, it would be worth going back to school if I could get into a really good school. And I was uh, fortunate to get into the University of Pennsylvania, um, the Wharton School, as most people know it, um, and had some great time there. And, uh, you know, it ended up being like a, uh, a catalyst for my career, which I'm very grateful for. Mm-hmm. Great. Why don't you share with us your brief work history after Wharton? Where did you where did you work, and then where are you today, and and what does that entail? Yeah, so um, look, I graduated effectively in two thousand three from BYU. Um, you know, so that would mean that my internships were like right after September eleventh. In fact, um, I'm one of the few people you talk to who can say when he was in school that one of the major firms in the industries that he was focused on ended up going under. Um, when I was at BYU, I was really interested in working at Arthur Anderson, which actually went under. Um, I knew people who had Arthur Anderson internships who had their offers reneged. Um, and then I went to Wharton in 2007. Um, and, uh, you know, right when the crisis effectively started, I know for some of you guys were probably in elementary school when this was happening, but, um, it was a crazy time to be at Wharton. I mean, um, I had classmates who had offers to go work at firms like Bear Stearns, who ended up getting those offers. Um, they weren't reneged like Anderson, but they were turned into different offers at JP Morgan, which uh, acquired Bear Stearns for like pennies on the dollar. And then um, I had friends who summered, had summer internships at Lehman Brothers, who after the summer, you know, found out that Lehman Brothers didn't exist. Um, you know, Barclays ended up acquiring Lehman Brothers, or at least part of it. And so some of those people got jobs at another firm called Barclays. But long story short, it was a very interesting time. So I went to Wharton thinking I was going to do something with investing. And I did a really fun internship working at a hedge fund that summer and made the firm I was working at a bunch of money. But, you know, there was just this interest, like, there was like a pause effectively in the finance industry for hiring, even at a school like Wharton. So I ended up trying to get a little creative and I found this opportunity in Florida working for the CEO of this company called Raymond James. And I was like, well, this will be really interesting. I get to work with the board of directors. I get to work with the management team. It was, the role was called assistant to the chairman. So it sounds like I was an executive administrative assistant, but it was more of like what I would call a chief of staff role where I would work with the CEO on major initiatives and kind of take over projects. So that was a two-year role. And after the two years were up, um, I got to know just about everything about like the financial services industry, whether it be asset management, wealth management, um, investment banking, sales and trading, et cetera. And so I decided to go into investment banking at Raymond James. And so went and moved from Florida to Boston, did that. I was in Boston for about four years. And then I ended up switching to another firm 
in Chicago for another four years. And now I work at uh, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch on the, in Palo Alto, California on the West coast. And I cover, um, I work in their technology group and I cover software companies. And for some of you guys, you're like, well, what's investment banking? You probably have heard it in the movies or heard it on the internet. I know, or, or seen it in the wall street journal. I'm sure I know credit, banks like credit Suisse have been in the news lately because of, uh, you know, um, some of the things that they've done with, uh, investors, but, um, uh, basically what I do and the, in the most simplest form is I advise, um, particularly software companies, which is my expertise on how to raise money, whether it be debt, which I'm sure you probably learned a little bit about debt, um, in your accounting class, as well as equity, whether they're raising common stock or some other equity like securities. So, um, that's effectively what I do, but I also do a little bit more than that. I also will help those companies if they're thinking about buying businesses to grow, right? Um, you know, I will um, help them think through what would be the right price to pay to buy a business or help them do the due diligence to determine whether that company might be a good fit from an acquisition standpoint. And then on top of that, I'll, in some cases, will advise the owners of these companies, whether it be about board of directors of a public company or the private equity or private owners of a, of a software company on different alternatives they can do to grow the business, whether it be selling the business um, or whether it be, um, you know, doing other acquisitions or doing different things for that matter. But long story short, that's what I do. Um, it's a really demanding job in a sense, um, you know, uh, but it's a very rewarding, um, you know, when you get to work with a company that goes public on the New York stock exchange or the NASDAQ, and you get to see how happy the entire company and management team is. And, you know, you go to the sec website, not that you guys are going to the sec website, but if you go to the sec website and pull up the S one or what's called a four, two, four before, and those are the, the actual um, SEC documents when you're taking a company public and you read the business section, you're like, Hey, I wrote that. That's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. um, I never thought I would use English as much as I do, by the way, in my career, but um, writing is a major part of what I do as well as building um, you working in Excel and building models. Um, so anyway, that's perfect. And I like that you mentioned writing. I, th I think that's a lost art where we think, accountants or people in business only need to worry about numbers. The numbers communicate a story, but also how you write communicates a story. You're trying to help help readers understand the number. You, you know, it's so funny you say that, uh, Professor Walsh, because like when I think about my time as a freshman at BYU or even back to high school, like, I mean, I took AP English. I tried to get out of I took it, by the way, just for everybody's benefit. Not, not trying to toot my horn that I took AP English. The reason I took it is I didn't want to take any English classes in college. That was the goal. Minimum number of English classes. Only one class I needed to take to graduate. And I took this class called Management Communications 320 at BYU. And I'm very proud that I did that. But looking back, like, you know, there is some real value in being able to argue or, or um, eloquently explain or, uh, persuasively, uh, try to argue for something. And I do that every day. I do that in emails. I do that in, you know, when I'm putting together these documents that, you know, investors end up reading and buying, um, stock in a company or making an investment decision. So, 
Um, what does that mean? Does that mean you guys should just start joining, you know, the Shakespeare club at, uh, at BYU, Idaho? No, but it just means that you need to be thinking about how you write and, and learning how to be more, uh, persuasive. And it's, it's comes through practice. Now I, I, I'm not trying to convince or persuade your professor to start making you guys do five paragraph essays on accounting or anything like that, or accounting principles. But I will say this, it's one of those things that, um, you know, frankly, higher education hasn't completely figured out the perfect way to teach it, but, um, don't, don't be surprised. It's going to be something you do. Um, and it's not just for lawyers and it's not just for English majors, um, or professors, um, research professors. Uh, it's something that is very valuable in what I do. And so, um, I wanted to point that out. So. Thank you for doing that. That's great. We're trying to incorporate more writing into the program just to help, um, help prepare our students. Yeah. How does accounting impact your job? You know, the way I think about accounting is it's kind of my superpower, right? Cause like a lot of people come into the job I do in investment banking where some of them have done, um, MBA degrees, um, at like Wharton or Harvard or Stanford or, um, you know, schools like that at the company I, I work at. Um, and some of them come from like really good, you know, uh, business schools or Ivy league schools, but some of them don't have any business experience in the sense that they studied accounting. Some of them have studied finance. I'm not going to say that they don't, but some, we, I work with some people who go to Columbia where there is no, there's an economics degree. Right. And so they, that's their exposure is more from an economic standpoint, but, you know, having taken, you know, literally does, you know, over a dozen accounting classes and having a CPA, it's just this superpower that I'm able to use because, you know, understanding accounting really helps me do my job much, much more effectively. Um, and I'll give you an example. So, you know, when we're working with a company that we're thinking about selling, um, or we're working with a company that's going public, um, you know, we're, that we're helping, you know, and I'll use the public company example, you know, the company needs to give research analysts or investors some sense of how the business is going to grow going forward. And so they build a financial model, right? And that the financial model is, you know, originally it's linked in Excel, but eventually it gets broken and they just give a bunch of numbers. But in order to build a financial model, you got to work through all three financial statements. They don't go away. You got to work through the balance sheet. You got to work through the income statement. You got to work through the statement of cash flows. And if you have a good, solid understanding of how these three statements all work together, you can really add a lot of value for your client because for many of them, they're just used to forecasting an income statement, but they don't think about, well, what happens when to the balance sheet? You know, if I have net income, what is, where does that net income go? Well, most of retained earnings. Well, you know, um, you know, and then on the other side is like, how does cash, how is cash impacted? And, uh, all those things get, um, scrutinized, you know, to the, you know, line item by line item. And so I'm able to help, you know, my clients effectively, uh, put together models. In fact, I'm working with one client right now who's about to go public and they put together, they were putting together a research model and we found errors in the model because we said, Hey, you know, your depreciation and amortization doesn't add up with your, you know, your net assets on your balance sheet. And, uh, you know, he hadn't linked them together. And again, having that knowledge, you know, was helpful from a, from a minute standpoint, but just more generally speaking, if you understand 
and what an how an inc- how to read an income statement that goes a long way in life. Um, you know, you're gonna you know work at a company or work somewhere where they're gonna have to put together a balance sheet. You know, to get money from a, a bank if they want to borrow money, or um, you know if they want to measure financial performance. There, you know, there's ways to measure financial por- performance outside of the three financial statements, but you know, looking at the income statement, looking at the statement of cash flows are are great ways to determine how a business is done over a period of time. And then balance sheets, a great way to measure what the place, how the business is at a point in time. So all those things are very, very helpful. And, um, you know, accounting has been truly a superpower for me. Mm -hmm. Great. How do you see that? So in investment banking, you have people with a lot of different backgrounds, those who may be majored in economics, how do they learn accounting to be good at their job? Yeah, so that's that's a great question. So when when these when new investment banking analysts come online, they the training program is not like a couple days or a week. It's like two months, right? So they have like a deep dive into accounting over a couple weeks. Um, they also are given a deep dive into finance and to be candid with you, some of them are just going to learn it as they go. Right. Like, you know, they're going to have to try to figure it out. And, you know, I, you know, because I have a good background in accounting, like to make sure that, um, I'm as helpful as to junior people to teach them and help them understand the whys of this stuff. But, um, you know, in some cases they have to like learn it on their own, um, you know, they'll, you know, I've seen people take like Coursera or these uh, MOOC courses on accounting just as a reference to kind of brush up. But um, there's different, um, you know, there's a, pro- a provider of training an actual there's actual firms who focus on training investment banks. It's actually an industry, which is kind of crazy. And they have modules and resources that people can go back to if they really want to, like, go learn a little bit more. But look, I will say, again, going back to my point, it's truly a superpower because I've been able to learn all that stuff. And, and even though accounting rules may change a little bit from time to time, I'm still able to leverage it and, and be very helpful uh, to the CFOs and to the CEOs I work with. And, and more importantly, to make sure that the work we put out is, you know, as air-free as possible. So. Mm-hmm. Great. Are there any particular accounting concepts that are critical for someone in your role? Yeah, I think, look, um, so look, um, not to give you guys a valuation lesson, but um, in software land, a lot of companies are valued based on their enterprise value. And if you want to find out what enterprise value is, go to Investopedia and you can Google it and learn about it. But it's a, a ratio of enterprise value over revenue, right? Well, you know, if you are a smart CFO, uh, you're trying to maximize that revenue number as high as possible, because if it's like, if you, if your comparable companies trade at 15 times enterprise value to revenue, and you can take your revenue from 300 million to 310 million, then that means you've created $150 million of enterprise value, uh, for your shareholders. Um, so from that standpoint, um, you know, understanding how revenue recognition works, understanding how revenue timing works, making sure that the company is, you know, and again, I'm not the PwC and like these accounting firms will work with these companies to make sure that accounting is correct. But as an investment banker, understanding the nuances is very critical. In fact, um, 
you know, I was working on it with a company, another company that I'm taking public later this year that, uh, in drafting their prospectus, uh, for going public, their S one, um, which, you know, is mostly the business section, but we were also drafting the management discussion and analysis, the MDNA. And, um, we were having this discussion around the difference between subscription revenue and regular revenue and having an understanding of what that is, was very helpful. And, um, you know, look, we see it, you know, I saw it once with another company where, um, you know, it took a period of time for us to actually file our documents with the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, um, which is kind of the step of the different steps to go public. And there was a, a disagreement between a local office of a big accounting firm and the national office of a big accounting firm. And so we had to kind of sit and watch this play out and eventually got sorted out. But like, you know, for some people who don't have an understanding of accounting concepts, it's, it's critical. So revenue for sure. And then understanding, you know, the different components that get to what's called EBIT uh, earnings before interest and taxes, or better said operating income, you know, they're the same thing for those that don't know operating income or income from operations. So understanding those components and how those could be manipulated or adjusted. Um, you know, another thing that, I'll do is I'll work with a company where they're being valued off of something called EBITDA earnings before interest taxes, depreciation and amortization, which is a non-gap term, but it's effectively a a proxy for, um, you know, like net income or operating cash flow or whatever. But um, my point I'm trying to make with this is, is that if you're a company and you're trying to sell yourself, you want to maximize EBITDA as much as possible. And so you actually will retain an accounting firm to do what's called a quality of earnings analysis, which means they'll go through all of your different, your, your financial statements and figure out if something's, you know, actually non-recurring or something that happened once and won't happen again, because you're trying to maximize that EBITDA again, as high as possible, because you want to apply a multiple to that to, to get the highest valuation. So Accounting concepts, honestly, and what I do are super critical. And um, I know this isn't a paid service announcement for by the accounting council, but um, I will say this: it's it's been very helpful for my career, and that's why I say it's a superpower. That's great. Thanks. So, what advice would you give to a student taking their first accounting course? So, this is a great question. Um, my nephew actually took his first accounting course. Um, last semester in fall. And uh, he said, I said to him to keep a big picture mindset, try to think about things from a big picture standpoint, like, look, to do well on the exams, you probably need to know like what to debit, what to credit, but it's like, what does that mean? Like when you, when some, when the, when a company books revenue, what is actually happening across the three financial statements? Well, if revenue is being booked, that means your revenue is going up on your income statement. So that means your net income theoretically is going to go up. I mean, obviously you got to adjust it for your cost of goods sold, but your, your, your revenue is going to go up. That means your net income goes up. And it's like, well, how does that impact the balance sheet? Well, you know, did you book that revenue with cash or was it booked on an account receivable? So how does that impact your, the asset side and the liability and owner's equity side of the balance sheet. And then ultimately, how does that impact your, your, your statement of cash flows? I will say this, one, if, if I could go back you know, 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago, when I was taking my first accounting class, 
I would really emphasize that to myself because I got very bogged down with like, okay, I got to memorize. So if, if this is, this is the problem, I got to do this for debit, this credit, and this is how you calculate it. And I got really focused on memorizing that. And it wasn't until after I left college that I really had to go back and, you know, really focus on the big picture stuff. And it's that big picture stuff that's going to help you get the most out of accounting. Whether you decide to be a CPA someday or be a finance person where you um, have to know accounting to do your job, if you're going to be a business owner, if you're going to be uh, a professional dancer, if you're going to be uh, whatever you want to be, understanding how these three financial statements fit together and understanding the big picture, that's what's going to set you apart and make you super successful at what you do. And that's where accounting can effectively be your superpower. Um, even if you decide you don't want to study accounting and you just want to do something in business or something completely outside of business. Great advice. Any last words of wisdom? Uh, I don't know. Um, I think uh, the other word of wisdom I would give you probably, um, you know, is find something that you are interested in when you're thinking about majors. I know I gave, a lot of anecdotes about how I went from, you know, studying uh, computer science and then do accounting and then wanting to be a lawyer and then deciding not to be a lawyer and then being an investment banker. Um, my point I'm trying to make here is that it's okay if at 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, or even 30, you don't know exactly what you're going to do for the rest of your life. The only advice I would give you is you just have to have a game plan and you have to have a good understanding of what your plan A is, what your plan B is, what your plan C is, and sometimes maybe even your plan E, you know, if you, you got to be able to think through while you're going through college, like, okay, if I don't get this job or don't, aren't able to get into this program, what am I going to do next? And, um, you know, if you're thinking, you know, very long and hard about what you want to do as a career, you should try to think ahead of time and not let things kind of come to you. So like, if you want to be, um, you know, and I know people who did the accounting program with me who went on to practice medicine and, uh, become a dentist. And, you know, in those cases, you got to do well in certain classes. And then after you do well in those classes, you got to take certain tests. So like, Having an understanding of that is super important. And then the next thing I want to say is trying to find people who are doing what you've done and getting to know those people. Now, look, I'll be candid with you. My parents didn't go to college. My dad, you know, never went to college. My mom didn't go to college. I did well in school and college was kind of like a choose your own adventure. Um, and I wish I had done been more proactive in trying to develop um, mentors. Um, now I would say after I got out of college, I did a really good job finding people who I wanted to talk to, who could help be helpful to me as I build my career. And I'm grateful for that, but like trying to find mentors and I'm sure there's a mentoring program at, at college. Those mentors could be people a year ahead of you. Those mentors could be people graduating. Um, you know, I tell, I told my nephew who's a, who's a freshman in college this year, just wrapping up his freshman year. I said, look, those people who are seniors that are wrapping up school, those people might be the people hiring you in like a year or two. So the best advice I could give you is to go say hi and, you know, don't, don't feel embarrassed. Just say hi and say, Hey, I'm thinking about doing this and keep it high level and start building a relationship. And, 
you know, because at the end of the day, those relationship matters. And then the last thing I will say is, you know, invest in your network, invest in the people that you get to know um, in school. And that doesn't mean, you know, trying to get them to help you. It also means trying to get them to, to, to help them as well. And like going out and, you know, trying to help them be successful in their life. Um, you know, Professor Walsh and I went to school together. And so that's how I know him. But um, we were just chatting before we did this pot recorded this podcast. And, you know, it's just amazing to me, the success of some of the people that I went to school with, and I'm just so proud of them. And, you know, I didn't like go to, to school thinking, oh, this guy is going to be worth, you know, nine figures, which, you know, I have a friend who's worth hundreds of millions of dollars, which is mind blowing. Um, you know, he was just my friend and we were just study friends and we helped each other out and we, you know, have similar interests and we've kept in touch. And, um, you know, and then I have other friends who've gone on to do cool things like teach at BYU Idaho, like uh, Professor Walsh. And like, like I said, you know, invest in your network, invest in the people around you. And really, if you try to help people around you, people are going to want to be around you. And so just be mindful of that. Um, you know, college isn't easy. Um, you know, bless everybody who's had to go through COVID going to college where you don't really get to have those necessarily ad hoc one-on-one interactions. Hopefully next year you get to have more of those, but I will tell you this, like if you make the time to, to, to get to know the people around you, um, one, you'll find that there's some people in your classes that can really help you do better in school, <laughs> but also you can find situations where you can really help people who are struggling in a different topic or are trying to learn about something where maybe your parents or your, one of your relatives is in that industry. And again, those are really, really helpful. And that's, you know, how a network gets built. Mm-hmm. Terry, so many good nuggets in there. Yeah. I think as a student, we get kind of locked, we can get locked in sometimes. And, and we think this is how my life is going to go when really we don't have a clue. Yeah. Like you said, we have a game plan and try to try to be thoughtful in our approach, but it would be short-sighted to say, well, I'm never going to use this and, or I'm never going to, this person, this other student and I will, I will probably never cross paths. Well, yeah, there's a good chance you will because you never know what's going to happen. I mean, look, um, I know that we've been talking for a while, but I do want to say one thing about that. Like even the people that you don't like at BYU, I don't remember the people that you are going to school with, they're going to be more likely to want to be your friend. When you enter the real world, there are going to be people who don't want to be your friends. And actually that's an even more important thing is don't make enemies with people you work with. Like even people who are super annoying who make your life difficult, you want to leave things on the best possible terms because you don't know when that relationship's going to pop up. I'll give you one final anecdote. Um, I was working with somebody um, before I went to business school who was super difficult to work with, just mean, not friendly, would pick on me for being from BYU and, you know, just not a cool person. And, you know, fast forward eight or nine years later, Um, I'm in, um, coming out of a meeting to pitch a company and, uh, for, for some business as an investment banker, and I'm hanging out, talking to one of my colleagues and walk, this guy walks past me, this heavier set guy walks past me with this heavy beard and walking these two dogs. And he's like, Hey, Terry. And I'm like, who is this guy? And sure enough, it was that 
you know, skinny scholar athlete from this other, you know, person I worked with and you know what, like I never, you know, I, though I didn't like him when I worked with him, I was never, I never like publicly like went after him or never tried to make his life difficult. And, you know, he was actually going through a really hard time. He had been laid off and he, you know, was really thinking about what he's going to do next. And, you know, because I was like a nice guy, like he went out of his way to talk to me and I was actually able to help him, you know, get on the right path to get his next job and where he is now. And so like, you know, we obviously, you know, there's a broader mission, um, with, BYU and with the church. And, you know, that's where you come in, each of you come in where you can have an impact and you got to remember that. And so, um, again, you might work with the most difficult person in the world someday. You might be working with the most difficult person today on campus at BYU, Idaho, in your view, but you just need to keep that broad perspective that these people that you interface with, you know, you can have a real impact in their lives and help them down the road and they can help you. I mean, I've had a number of people, who I didn't love working with and I had to go back out and reach out to them because of, you know, we were trying to win business with their company. So um, that's another, uh, I probably could write a book on these, but that's another thing that (laughs) people don't think about uh, when they think about their career. Um, You know uh, you know, so think about that. So. Well, thank you, Terry. This is, this has been great and we appreciate the time you've taken to, to meet with us. And um, the students will definitely benefit from hearing your uh, anecdotes, tips, and real-life experiences. Yeah, and if you ended up fast-forwarding to the end, just rewind back like at least 15, 20 minutes earlier to get some of these good tidbits. I will tell you guys, um, you know, if I can be helpful to you, I wanted to. So hopefully you've learned a lot. So Thank you very much. Sometimes as an icebreaker, I'll ask someone if they could have one superpower, what would it be? No one has ever told me accounting, but why not? It's Terry's superpower, and you don't have to get bit by a spider to get it. It does take work, but is more realistic than waiting for a mad scientist to inject you with serum. The price of an item increases when it is rare. Your salary will reflect the rare skills you bring to the table. Terry mentioned the importance of writing. It made me think of common subjects students don't enjoy, like writing and accounting. Because few stick with those two skills, it is rare to find someone with both. However, if you learn those two skills well, and then layer on your area of emphasis, you will be rare and generate a higher salary than someone who shies away from a challenge. You can do this.